Well, hello there, and welcome to The Pursuit of Dadliness. I'm your host, Patrick Wyman. Thanks so much for joining me today. I doubt I'm the only one who feels as though pop culture has passed them by. When I try to reference some common cultural point, everything I can point to is at least 15 years old, maybe 20. Usually, if we're being honest, more like 25. Past that, it's a crapshoot as to whether I'm familiar with things that literally everybody else seems to know. I know that Billie Eilish has the voice of a danged angel. I'm pretty sure I can identify each of the Kardashian clan, but past that, I'm, I'm in trouble, guys. How did I get so clueless about this? And how did such a large segment of Americans, the dadly set in particular, get left in the pop culture slipstream? There is nobody better to ask about these questions than today's guest. Sam Sanders is one of the most perceptive observers of and commenters on pop culture in the United States. He has mostly done that through the medium of radio shows and podcasts. He was one of the founding co-hosts of the NPR Politics podcast. He created and hosted NPR's pop culture show, It's Been a Minute, and currently hosts two shows, a pop culture show for Vulture entitled Intuit and another for Stitcher, Vibe Check. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my goodness. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So I want to ask you about radio and podcasts, something that you do professionally much better than I do. How did you get into radio and podcasts? Was that something you you always wanted to do? Did you kind of fall into it? And why have you stuck with it for so long now? Yeah, um, there wasn't a master plan. I don't think I even knew what NPR was until I was like in college because a college professor told me what NPR was. Then I began (laughs) to listen and liked it. But no, it was kind of, I don't think anyone who knew me when I was a kid would have expected me to make a career out of talking for a living. I had a really severe stutter as a kid, like crippling for years. And I was even too embarrassed about it to like go to speech therapy or even talk about it. But what I began to do the older I got was just make myself be a part of activities at school that would force me to talk. So I made myself be in student government in high school. I made myself run for band president. When I was in college, I was an RA. And then I was in the Black Student Union. And then I was student government president. And I was just like, if I just make myself talk, I'll get better at talking. And that happened. It was a There probably was an easier way to get to a solution, but that's what I did. But I remember what drew me to public radio was... Being in the midst of graduate school with hundreds of people pursuing like master's degrees in public policy, which I got. And these were folks who were laser focused on like their objectives. A lot of them just wanted to run for president. A lot of them wanted to fix the education system. A lot of them wanted nothing more than to like work for the Foreign Service. And I was in the midst of these folks, just as smart, but in many ways rudderless. And I don't know how I ended up on public radio, but I realized quickly that doing something like that would allow me to still keep it general interest. When you're a general assignment reporter or producer at a place like NPR, the beat is kind of formless and shapeless and you can take time to discover and dig into anything. And so for someone who hadn't really decided what he wanted to do for a living, that sounded great. Um, a friend of mine in graduate school just knew someone who knew someone at the public radio station in Boston. They hooked me up with an internship and I wrote my master's thesis with them. And then I just kind of stuck around. But 
truly there was no master plan. It was kind of just, uh, will this will this give me something to do that's interesting and pays rent? <laughs> that's. I mean, honestly, that's not all that different from how I got into audio. Uh, yeah, because I was. I was in graduate school and it became very clear to me that I wasn't going to be an academic. I was not cut out for this. One of my advisors who, God bless her, she's like, Patrick, you're an intellectual magpie. And she didn't mean it as a, she she did not mean it as a compliment. But so, I mean, I I knew there was no way I was going to spend, you know, a decade writing a book about one very specific limited Mm -hmm. topic and be happy with that. But Mm -hmm. I was working as a journalist on the side and I fell into doing first podcasts and then radio. And then when I finished finished my PhD. I'm like, well, I know how to do that. And then I can talk about whatever I want to talk about. And mm-hmm. it's, I think for, for those of us who aren't laser focused, getting into audio as a medium gives you a lot of freedom to go in and check things out and try things. Because yes. if you can do the medium, then you can kind of expand to cover whatever topics you want to. Yeah. Well, and like for as long as I can remember a lot of the work that I've been doing, whether I was a producer behind the scenes or a breaking news reporter on the ground or covering the election and then doing these podcasts every week you get to just like learn something new like go learn something new ask smart questions about it and talk about it that is infinitely interesting i you know jobs are jobs and we have complaints about our jobs whoever we are but i'm never bored by this work it's never boring because there's always a new thing to talk about so no it's great I'm blessed. And I get to work from home. It's pretty great. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I'm sitting in a closet in my office right now. I got no sleeves on. This is just like. The, yeah, the, this is the life. On, on, and like, I don't even have to be on video. This is so right? good. Like, nobody wants to look at my face anyway. That's like, we're that's, this is working out great. Well, <laughs> so I want to I want to ask you about the experience of working for NPR, because you make. I mean, really, really good stuff, right? And and PR makes really good stuff. And so clearly you have learned how to make really good stuff. Um, You know, one of the first interactions that you and I had was uh, you were interviewed for a Vanity Fair piece on the state of podcasts. You said something that really resonated with me. Um, Quote, what none of us liked watching over the last several years was that it felt like the people who were getting the most power and money to make this stuff seemed to care least about the craft. I felt that so strongly that there's just a lot of dreck out there in audio and that's what a lot of the kind of fire hose of money is getting pointed at it's not easy to make good audio it takes work there there really is a craft to doing it well how did it happen that we're in this place where what the money is getting pointed at is not stuff that's particularly well done you know i mean i think it's like there's something that happens when the medium you're in goes from niche to mass market And I think that's a big part of what's happening right now in podcasting. So before Serial, podcasting existed. But if you didn't know about podcasts and care about podcasts, you weren't into it. And so the entire podcast marketplace knew that. And so it wasn't for scale. It was for a small community of somewhat diehard fans. And I think that kind of environment where the entire industry is niche allows it to be full of people who consider themselves artisans. You're not trying to make the podcast equivalent of Top Gun Maverick. The whole thing is an indie film endeavor. And so I think what happened after the success of Serial, which really changed everything, you had people who would never think of podcasting as a true money-making endeavor all of a sudden say, wait. And so I live in LA. It has been very interesting to see 
these big agencies, these big managers, these big celebrities in the last few years just start looking at podcasting and saying, what's over there? That's new. When I began at NPR, that wasn't happening. And so without fail, when an entire industry like podcasting starts to be just looked at differently and seen as being more lucrative, you're going to just end up with more and different types of podcasts, some of which are just made to be lucrative. That said, I'm not sure if that's a solvable problem, and I'm not sure it's even a problem, right? Like, I love movies. There are a lot of movies that are made just to make money. That doesn't mean I didn't enjoy theater camp, right? People will ask me sometimes, are there too many podcasts? Is the industry gone bad? And I'll say, would you ever say, are there too many books? No. It's maybe hard to find the books you want. There are probably perverse financial incentives for authors in the world today. But I still like books and I can still find one that speaks to me. So how much of this is just par for the course? How much of this is just par for the course? And also, just back to the craft thing. Isn't that an issue in every field? Yeah. Yeah, Sometimes the best-selling books are the crappiest ones. (laughs) Sometimes the biggest hit movies are the shittiest ones. This is the struggle of capitalism. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. This is... I I, I think about this a lot. I mean, because I got into podcasting at a very specific moment. I I made my first history show in 2016 and I did it independently, but I don't think if I had tried to do that even a year later, I would have been able to turn it into a job the way that I did. Because when I got into it, there was still ad money out there, a big pot of ad money for independent shows um, Mm -hmm. that you could have an independent show that didn't rely on subscribers that was mm-hmm. ad supported and that was a viable path to shoot for to look for profitability yeah and yeah. now i'm not sure that that would have been a viable i know it's not a viable path now no. in in 2023 but i don't know if even six months or a year after i had tried it if it would have worked the same because that was right when everybody all of these big companies started making their own original shows and yeah to the extent that there was a limited pot of ad dollars it was all going into their own original things not shows that somebody else owned Exactly. Well, and then what happened is when I was hosting the NPR Politics podcast, we didn't have that much competition. We started doing episodes every day for the in, during the week of both conventions and in the run up to election week. At that point, we were the only national daily political podcast. That's no longer the case, right? <laughs> we're in this marketplace right now where there it's 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 harder than ever to find a podcast that you want to hear and then when you know what kind of podcast you want there are like 20 options of that (laughs) thing right so that is an issue like but for me it's a discovery issue less than a quantity issue but the other thing looming over all of this is a situation that has also happened in streaming television streaming tv for years when it was ascendant was known for paying way too much money to get really big stars to make stuff for their platforms. Podcasting is going through the same thing. God bless the bros from Smartless, but $80 million? $80 million. Um, God not bless Joe Rogan, but was he worth (laughs) that money either? And so this is also a compounding issue. It's not just there's a lot more podcasts, so it's harder to gain traction and fewer ad dollars to go around. There are also a handful of 
superstars sucking up so much money out of the pot and it's not yet clear if they're worth those paychecks. And like you think about how much money Spotify spent for their celebrity podcasters, even Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Could that money have kept Gimlet afloat? Gimlet uh, was their bespoke podcasting company that they acquired a few years ago and have since folded. But let me not say too much because I enjoy having a nice friendship with Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, these are these are the questions that you have to think of if you work in and around audio. I mean, trying to understand the landscape of it as a business and not just as a medium for making things is really mm-hmm. hard because you're. Tr- it's like pinning down a moving target. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're constantly trying to understand where it's going in order to be able to make the stuff that you want to make. Like that's the hard yeah. part. Is like to be able to make a show where you talk about stuff that you want to talk about, you have to mm-hmm. understand the business aspect of it in order yeah. to, in order to have the opportunity to do that. Not just because we all have to pay rent and, and mortgages yeah. and, you know, uh, get kids braces and stuff. Yeah. Also that said, I always tell people who just want to make a podcast cause they want to make a podcast. I'm like, it might be more freeing for you if you just make what you want to make and know that your four or five friends might listen to it, but that might be enough. You know, like it, this is a thing. It's like, A lot of people journal just to journal, helps them feel good. They don't need it to be read by millions of people. You can look at podcasting like that for yourself if you just want to do it. Do what you want to do. Yeah, that's one of the things is like the way in which kind of being in capitalism forces us to to think like, is this a monetizable thing? Or can I turn my hobby into Mm -hmm. a side hustle? And it's like, sometimes it's okay for things to just be Hobbies. Just do it because you like it. Yeah, yeah. just do it because yeah. you like it. That's okay. And if you learn a whole lot about how it works and you discover you have a real passion for it and you discover you have a talent for it, then yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe it becomes a money-making venture down the road. But like, but it doesn't re- have to. No, I really like basketball, but I know I'm not good at it. There you go. <laughs> I, like- I played saxophone growing up and majored in music in undergrad. And I miss playing my saxophone, so I've started taking lessons again. I'm never going to be selling my saxophone music for money. It's not happening, but I like to do it, so I do it, you know? (laughs) That's it. This is something that gets lost, and it's like, it's something that I really enjoy about having reached this particular stage of life is that now I know that, like, I'm not going to turn everything into a, like, everything into a side hustle. I'm not in my 20s or early 30s anymore. Like, I ain't got time for that. I'm I'm not. No. And I'm knowing, and I know for a fact I'm probably not going to master these things well enough to be, for somebody to pay me for them anyway. Exactly. (laughs) So, so why try? No, a great mentor of mine once told me years ago He said, maturity is just one thing. Maturity is just one skill. Knowing what you can do, knowing what you can't do, and acting accordingly. That's it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I wish I could get that framed and put it on a wall. It's it's so good. (laughs) As you get older, I think understanding the limits of your own abilities and not not letting your reach exceed your grasp is a great skill to pick up. Not everybody gets it, but it's an, an important one. Yes. Totally. So I want to I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about pop culture, because, again, as, yeah. a, as a man of a certain age and, and demographic, I feel like this is just totally left me behind. You know, this topic very well. I'm almost completely disconnected from it. How is it that American men of a particular age and orientation and kind of cultural position get so disconnected? How does that process even happen? They're not disconnected. I'm gonna you push don't back. think so? OK, they're yeah, connected on some things and, and not on others. Whenever a man 
whenever a middle-aged person, whenever a straight person is like, how do I keep up with pop culture? I just ask them, well, what do you keep up with now? And for straight men, it's usually sports. To which I say, you can keep up with that. What do you do regularly to keep up? There are websites you go to regularly. You know, there are group chats you're in. You watch the stuff. Like, it's doable. I think that what happens as we leave our early 30s is that people our age stop becoming the center of attention for the pop culture zeitgeist. You know how it is. Like, there is a key marketing demo, which you fall out of after the age of 34 or 35, and there's a certain visual aesthetic that new and current music exists to serve, as in young people, like very young people. Um, And so some of it is just like you have moved into a different marketing bracket. But another part of it, I think, is just like reminding yourself pop culture is big. It can cover everything. And you're still always curious about something, right? You're curious about something. And are there ways that your curiosity for one thing can translate or give applicable skills to something else? I think now I've reached a point in my life. I turned 39 a few weeks ago. Um, If I really want to stay up on stuff, I have to work at it a little bit. But that's fun, right? Like, I have to work at it. I have to go look and see. But when I do... What I'm comforted by is knowing that everything the kids do, it's 99% of the time an interpolation of what we did 20 years ago. (laughs) That makes me feel better. You know what's wild right now, Patrick? When you go look at like all the youth TikToks and music videos, they are just dressing like me and my friends dressed in eighth grade. (laughs) It's just peak 90s fashion. Please tell me they haven't brought the Jinkos back. The, I, I'm waiting for it. Listen, Jinkos and a fresh pair of K-Swiss, sign me up, buddy. <laughs> oh, God. Sign me up. Oh, my God. I, if they were hitting the youth wardrobe from where I grew up in Yakima in the mid-90s, there would be a lot of jorts. There would Hell be, yeah. jorts would be a very Hell big yeah. thing. I saw a gentleman wearing jorts to church the other day, mm. and he was a God accepts gentleman. all. <laughs> <laughs> <That> was, I, <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right. I'm like, I'm like, dude, what are what are we doing here? Like, mm-hmm. I I know you've reached a certain age, but like, you can't tell me you got those jorts out of the closet and you thought this is a good idea. Like, how did mm-hmm. like how did we get here, sir? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there would be a lot of jorts on TikTok oh, yeah. if they oh, were yeah. if they were throwing it back oh, to yeah. to my eighth grade year. Um, had yeah. some nice ones. Had some nice right? jorts. <laughs> Not bad jorts. I will say though, this is the question I think about a lot. How do I keep my finger on the pulse? And like, what things can I actually do if I want to just stay more informed? Um, my first love is music. I studied it. I'm a musician. And so I always want to make sure that I'm on top of the pulse of popular music. And let me tell you what a nice little cheat is. The algorithm. Really? It will tell you. It will tell you. Um, there are many ways to see what's trending, not just globally, but across the world on Spotify. That's my preferred music app. But they have a list of the top songs globally, the top songs nationally. And then if you want to get specific, there are certain like thematic playlists that always just give you the new and the next. Um, I have found that popular music has moved into a very kind of emo, chill wave, bedroom pop kind of moment. A lot of this ushered in by Billie Eilish. Um, and then my favorite way to stay up on the latest of that ilk of music is this constantly updated playlist in Spotify called Lorem, 
L-O-R-E-M. It is a playlist of basically chill wave pop from the kids. And I just follow it, and I'll have it on when I'm working from home. And if I hear a song that I like, I heart it. It's saved to a playlist. And then if I'm intrigued, I will Google these youths and learn about them. And then now I know, right? This is this this is the thing I really appreciate about what you're saying is like that there is a process that you take to become more knowledgeable about this. Like there is yes. a craft to keeping up with pop culture in yes. a way that you take for granted when you're young because you get it all through osmosis because you're just being exactly. fed it all through the yeah. media that you consume all the time. As we get older, we got to try a little hard. It's like it's like staying in shape as you get older. Like or, oh or yeah, dieting. different it's kinds the... of workouts, more workouts. <laughs> well, and I find that like at my age. I just have to be comfortable with Googling things. (laughs) I will just open up TikTok. It starts doing a TikTok thing. I'm like, what the hell are these kids doing? I could say, it's not for me. It's the kids. I could just open up Safari or Chrome and Google it. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it's just that simple. When you see a thing that you don't know about, but it seems intriguing, or it seems like lots of folks are talking about it, you could just Google I know it sounds like I'm being kind of a little bitch about this, but like seriously, no. it's a no. game change for me. Like your phone is a supercomputer yeah. and it's always with you. No, this is something I was talking about this with, with Jamel Bowie when I was interviewing him and we were, ta- we were talking about like cultivating habits of mind and yeah. just being willing to Google something that, str- that piques your curiosity is a mm-hmm. fantastic habit to get into. Like, yes. that's just you have access to it as opposed to closing it off and saying that's not for me or I'm, I can't do this. Very, I have had that happen recently with the young women acting like uh, NPCs. I couldn't wrap my head around oh, that. That, I, that. It took me a good three hours to figure it out, but I'm I, glad I tried. I, it's I, hard. I had, to, I, ha- I had to ask multiple people what was happening yeah. there and get multiple answers to sift through to like combine them to create an answer that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. I still will, I won't be consuming that content, uh, <laughs> but but now at least I understand what was happening with it. But I could tell like okay, this one is definitely not definitively yeah. not for me. <laughs> right. Well, and then also though, it's like once you start to investigate this thing that seems totally weird and foreign, you're like oh. Oh, I get NPC. Yeah. I grew up playing video games. I know Grand Theft Auto, same energy, right? And I feel the same way about music videos. So I grew up obsessed with music videos and I felt like they were one of the best visual records of a moment in pop culture. And once I got into my 20s, I kind of just stopped watching music videos. What I try to do now is like go to Vivo, go to YouTube and just see what hot and fresh videos their algo gives me. And two things happen. It shows me who I might want to Google some more. And it also reminds me that like a lot of the visual aesthetics for cultural creation in our current moment is recycled. Like I'll see these videos and be like, that reminds me of Madonna. Cute. (laughs) I'll see these videos and be like, that reminds me of Usher. It's never as if this introduction of new pop culture into my frame is entirely alien. All of these young people are playing with stuff that was written before. Mm-hmm. That and that's kind of the nature of pop culture is it's it's iterative, right? That yeah. It, it, it can, it, it's continuously accreting and building on itself. We've talked about Billie Eilish a couple of times. I mentioned her in my intro. You mentioned her a little while ago. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed about listening to her music was that I could recognize what she was riffing off of and what she was playing off of. Exactly. Like the loud, soft dynamics that that you got from like '90s grunge, right? Like the yeah. kind of early 2000s Coldplay esque stuff. Mm-hmm. And and it was stuff like when I googled her and started reading about her that made sense 
silence because that was music that she listened to when she was younger. That you know, all of these like famous '90s rock stars are bringing their kids to her concerts because they yeah. love her music, and yeah. she recognizes them and knows them. And I'm like, oh, this is not an unknowable thing. I understand where she's coming from. I understand how that comes together to make the music that she makes, and I understand why I like it. That makes perfect yeah. sense. It's a yeah. noble thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I even think about, I mean, like the story of hip hop right now is how women dominate it and they have more fun. The men are angry and sad. The women have fun. Cardi B's having fun. Megan Thee Stallion is having fun. Flo Millie is having fun. So many. You cannot look at any popular female rapper right now in the game and not just think about Little Kim and Foxy Brown. You know, and I find that comforting. You know, it's like I have a cultural touchstone by which to connect. So and this always happens, whatever the case, like no one is making popular culture that exists in a vacuum separate from all the pop culture that has come before it. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> well, and I'm really happy that like Nicki Minaj is still around because she had yes. she had for my money the best verse on. Uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy on reverse monster. on monster yeah it's still it's, classic it's, yeah. it is honestly the best verse on an album packed with great verses mm-hmm. and like the fact that Nicki Minaj is still out here still doing it and I'm like okay so like stuff doesn't just end I, like, exactly. I've been, th- I've been thinking about this a lot lately and pop culture is a great example of this kind of like hydra like process that you see throughout society is like it's not like when somebody gets famous at a, for for a minute and you know them for one particular thing that they stop existing or exactly. that the influence that they exerted in that moment is just completely over like that becomes a strain of culture that then exists for years decades down the road that other people can pick up on in in interesting ways oh yeah I'll never forget I first realized this uh, one of my younger cousins Haley I was probably 17 or 18. She was maybe like 9 or 10. We're all visiting, big family visit. And I don't know how it happened, but some Michael Jackson song came on, and she knew all the words. And it's like, you're 9 years old. (laughs) But it's like some things are just so there, so present, they seep into your bones. My favorite internet phenomenon is that every few years, there's a viral video of a young person hearing Fleetwood Mac's dreams for the first (laughs) time. Yes, yes. Every few years. Yeah. And this will happen until the end of time. It's like some stuff just stays and just sticks. I find it comforting. It's It's comforting. It's amazing. I was thinking about this the other day because Bowie's Golden Years came up on one of my playlists. Yeah. This sounds like a song that could come out right now. Like to speaking of the kind of like the chill wave type of stuff you were mentioning, this is it would fit perfectly in that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's going to be a new round of appreciation, especially for like late 70s, early 80s, new wave type stuff, Mm -hmm. um, because it matches the vibe now in some kind of ineffable way. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Well, and like this is where I think. I would offer some guidance to folks in the dad boat or folks in the middle-aged boat. It is a much more exciting endeavor to look at new pop culture and try to find those parallels than to look at new pop culture and just say, it's not made specifically for me, therefore I hate it. This is where the problem comes in. We can reach an age at which everything new just seems bad because it's new, but the fun of the game... (laughs) The fun of the game is to figure out how it's not new. That's fun. So my dad is very much a like 
the thing he loves is music. He's always loved yeah. music. He was big. In, yeah. He was big into Motown. Uh, yeah. He loved loved classic rock. Loved music, but then fell out of listening to new mm-hmm. music. I would say mm-hmm. in the eighties and the and the nineties. Like he like the yeah. only really new things that he listened to. Like I think he bought Tom Petty's Wildflowers album. You know? <laughs> maybe maybe some yeah. Sheryl Crow. But then yeah. kind of one day in the early two thousands, he started hearing like indie rock and like alternative, like early two thousands indie yeah. stuff, and got really into it and built. Yeah. An encyclopedic collection of fantastic 2000s indie rock because it was all throwbacks to stuff that he had loved in the 60s and the 70s. But he went about it actively. He took the music seriously and he's like, where can I see the things that I like? And I think that's that's kind of at the core of the way that you're approaching pop culture that contrasts with the, "Ah, this isn't for me type of thing. You have to approach it actively. You have to be actively interested in it and you have to accept the idea that there may be something cool here that you don't know about, which can be hard, I think, for people at a certain age to get to, to be like, well, I've seen seen all all this before. Oh yeah. I have had to do a lot of interviews where I didn't specifically love the movie or the book or the album or the whatever. And a thing I ask myself before I have to do those conversations is, all right, asking or talking about how this thing is good or bad is one way to have this conversation. But what if the third way, the best way, is not to ask, is this good, is this bad? Is it to ask, how is this interesting? How is this interesting? You know, it is a neutral way to open ourselves up to discovery. So I don't know. It's like my challenge for the dads listening, the folks in our age bracket listening. Think less about is it good or is it bad? Think about how it can be interesting. That always helps. At this age, I think you don't have to consume all of it. Right. Like you, you don't can't. have to be. A, you can't. Yeah, you, that's we've, we're past that point. If there, mm-hmm. there is no monoculture, you can't do it. Yeah. Like, yeah. But you can afford to be selective and just find mm-hmm. a few things that you like and be like, OK, mm-hmm. these are going to be the things that I hang on to from this. Like you don't have to listen to the entire like is the Billboard Top 100 still a thing? I, I assume. Yeah. It is. yeah. You don't have yeah. to listen to the entire thing or like every song on it. But just like you didn't like every song that was out in 1996, you had songs you didn't like when you were a kid, too. You know? Exactly. Well, and like there's some shows where you just watch to keep up. I watched Euphoria to keep up. I realized after the pilot, this show is a very sexy long form music video. The plot will never make any sense. Cheers to Zendaya, but this is almost torture point at this point. But I watch it just to see what's up with the kids. And it's like at a certain point, I really don't care if Euphoria is good or bad. What I care about is what kind of conversations me watching it can open up with people my age and people younger too. The way in which it becomes a touchstone yes. for people to, and the and I mean that's the great power of pop culture, right? Is that it becomes yeah. a, a mirror for people to view themselves and to view the world around them exactly. and to, to kind of make sense of these things. Yeah, totally, totally. I, I think it's really easy, especially for again. I think men of a certain age who occupy a certain cultural position to be like, well, it's not for me. It's not important. And they neglect that, like, okay, these are billion dollar industries that we're talking about here. Like, these are not this is not like small potato stuff. Like the, the amount of money involved in this is very serious. But also that, like these things are meaningful for people and they're not yes. they're they're meaningful because they're points of reflection and yes. they're they're the kinds of tools and scripts that people have to understand their lives and and, and like to know how to live and be their lives yeah. you know i grew mm-hmm. up in 
an evangelical Christian home and you just weren't allowed to be gay. I was obviously very gay. And the first semblance of a script I had for thinking about how to live that life, my life, was literally watching fame and Rocky Horror Picture Show on VH1. Like pop culture for a lot of people from marginalized backgrounds, it offers a sense of possibility for what your life could be. So it is very important. And I would say to any dad, any father, any man who doesn't see that, I would ask them, I not even ask them, I would just tell them, you play fantasy football. (laughs) You play fantasy football. You devote hours of your time every week to a thing that has fantasy in the title. You don't get to tell anybody else (laughs) that the pop culture they care about is worthless. Yeah, yeah. You play fantasy football. You're you're getting mad at a 23 year old for not catching a pass, and that is what's going to make you be humiliated in front of your friends. Like, like just like that's. But this is this is the great power of cultural analysis and the kind of work that you do. The kind of analysis that you do is it denaturalizes these things, right? Mm. So it's the especially again for men of a certain age, and I include myself in this. It's really easy to view yourself as the default in any sort of mm-hmm. conversation and that anything that departs from that is somehow deviant or divergent or like not to be taken seriously. And I mm-hmm. hate that. I despise that. I despise the lack of self-awareness to understand that like you yourself are part of a an entirely manufactured culture. Like it's mm-hmm. not that everybody else is wrong or whatever. It's that you're just not aware of the constructedness of your own kind of preferences and reality, right? Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Well, and and it's always so weird when people who are fathers do this cuz it's like you have the opportunity to like I don't know, be a tour guide for your kids. I don't have kids, but someone smarter than me once told me that one can think of parenthood as just being a tour guide, maybe even a campus tour guide. You have to answer any question they throw at you. You have to be able to walk backwards the whole time, and you must be able to point out the important stuff along the way, right? Parenthood is (laughs) being a college campus tour guide. If that's the case... Any good tour guide knows both the history of the campus and also where it's going. Yep. Like a good tour guide is not just going to tell you this building was built in 1912. They'll also say in six months, the new dining hall will be here. There's a need for holistic parenting to not just guard the past, but also embrace and be curious about the future. Isn't that better for your fucking kid? Anywho, don't get me started. But like these, these, these like parents who have the opportunity to build connections with their children over pop culture, then not doing it. Yeah, come on. You should be modeling curiosity for your children. There right? you go. Like you should be modeling intellectual go. curiosity for them. Yes, that is a choice that you can make as a parent. Like yes. there's there's lots of things you don't get to choose as a parent, right? There's lots yes. of things that are just they're just there, and you have to deal with them, and they are they are what yeah. they are, right? Yeah. But you have a choice in terms of how you interact around those subjects, and just being curious and asking your kids about that stuff. It's like, my parents were pretty good at this when I was young. And I, I really appreciated that they did that. It was they asked me questions about the music that I was listening to. They listened yeah. with me. You know, they asked me about like events that were happening and how my friends felt about them. They did a fantastic job of that. And it made me feel as though they were trying to understand my world. And I like, 
my parents are of a certain age too, where they came of age in like the late sixties. Right. And so for them, mm -hmm. youth culture was really important. It mattered a lot. And they carried that into their parenting of me, I think in really interesting ways. It's, it's one of the things I think they did really well when I was, yeah. and totally. I, I hope to be able to do that with my kids too. Yeah. Imagine if you went on a campus tour and the campus tour guide didn't ask any of the potential students what they might want to major in, what they like, <laughs> why they're here today. Yeah, sorry, I'm just going to keep beating this college tour guide analogy into the ground because I like it. But yeah, be curious, model curiosity, get off your high horse. Get off your high horse. Yeah, especially a cultural high horse. There's no high horse more annoying than a cultural one, yeah. I think. Like gatekeeping music or oh as God. a product of like late 90s and early 2000s nerd culture, like gatekeeping nerd culture is the, yeah. is the most ridiculous thing. Like the yeah. whole point was that it was accessible to any and all. Like that was the whole point. Literally. <laughs> yes, yes, you get it, you okay. get it. Okay, so you mentioned growing up gay in an evangelical household. I was recently introduced to the character of the gay uncle, which is not, uh, which was not something that I was super familiar with. What are some of the like the norms and trends around the character of the gay uncle? I'm fascinated by this. I mean, I am now. I sub. Oh my god, I'm a gay uncle. I've got four <laughs> nephews and a godson. What are my traits? Um, not here for a long time, but here for a good time. You know, I zoom in. <laughs> Can I can I feed these children all of the wrong foods? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> can I just drive my car for a little bit just for fun? I know he's twelve. It's fine. Like it's I'm like, totally how totally can fine. we just like so chaos in a very fun way? I don't know. I mean, I think like if I'm looking at this like metaphysically, if I'm lo looking at this creatively, I think the trope of the gay uncle is just all of the shit that we wish straight dads could do but don't. That's interesting. Tell me more about that. And I think that. the biggest difference when I see a gay uncle character on screen, they listen in a way that straight dads sometimes don't on screen. And they're kind of just like, I'm here to help. I think a lot of, well, because like, what is a portrayal of a gay uncle is if not held right next to our imagery of what a straight dad is you know they are in conversation and so what is a gay trope telling me also about straight dadness it's saying that in our current nuclear family heteronormative setup that there's a need for a gay uncle which means that we have built family life in a way that puts too much pressure on two or one parents and not on a collective and a community right and then it's also saying to me, there's a certain freedom that these gay uncles get to have in relation to young people that straight dads either aren't giving themselves or they aren't allowed. So all that the trope of the gay uncle is telling me is that straight dads would be better if they kind of freed themselves. And I think the gay uncle trope is a model of possibility for straight dads. I, I absolutely love that because, and it makes perfect sense to view the trope as a counterpoint because it's like wearing nice clothes or caring yeah. about one's appearance, which is yeah. something, God bless it. This is yeah. this is not a, not a point of emphasis for most of the dadly set. Um, yeah. Like the going out and having a good fun meal, brunch, brunch is a, <laughs> like yeah. brunch is a thing. Like straight dads are as a demographic kind of excluded from brunch. Like the, like Which the, is wild because it's just eggs. 
It it's is. eggs. It's it twelve dollar eggs. And everybody it's not loves that much. eggs. Everybody yes. loves eggs, and everybody yes. can and should love a mimosa. The mimosa should shit. not be should not be siloed or gatekept. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, you think who gets to go to brunch? The gay uncle gets to go to brunch. Moms get to go to brunch. Um, mm-hmm. The girls get to go to brunch. Straight men are 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 not. It's not that they're not allowed to, but it's not they just a. Don't. It's not part of the straight men's cultural script. Getting up and going to brunch with your friends. Yeah, and like when I think of when I see like a gay uncle or a lesbian auntie character in a TV show or movie, they are an adult figure that the child often feels more comfortable confiding in yeah. than they do with their parents. So what is that saying to me? Is the model of the gay uncle or the lesbian aunt saying there's a version of adulthood that can better meet kids where they are? It doesn't make you less of an adult. It doesn't give them all the power. It just means that there's a way to come into conversation with young people in a way that meets them where they're at. And I think so much of the way that dads communicate with their kids, especially on screen, is I'm here, you're there. The essence of the gay uncle is saying, hey, girl, I'm wherever you need me to be. Let's have a good time. (laughs) Well, and this is something I've talked about with a whole bunch of dads as I've been doing this show is oftentimes I think dads feel pressure to be the bad guy and Mm -hmm. to be the one who's well, there's got to be some discipline here. We have to have discipline for some unknown reason Mm. that you can't even properly articulate, but there has Mm -hmm. to be a a villain somewhere in the household or somebody has to play the role of a villain at some particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that responsibility is going to fall to the dad or that it's somehow a burden for an adult straight man to share his feelings about Mm -hmm. things that the most noble thing you can do is not be a burden on other people emotionally or physically. Right. Mm -hmm. And that part of that means being closed off to the emotions and feelings of others. You've got like a shield between yourself and other people's emotions. Well, and then what happens is usually your wife is just picking up that slack. Your wife, the mother, is doing all the emotional labor. She's actually the person who probably keeps discipline as well. And, you know, these men have tricked themselves into thinking they're doing everything by doing less. Do more. (laughs) Open up more. Yeah. Like, there is nothing on that note that that bothers me more than when a a dad says he is, quote, babysitting his kids. Like, like they're your kids, man. Literally came out of you, my dude. Yeah. (laughs) you're, You're literally describing the baseline level of engagement that you're supposed to have with your children. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also I think it's like a lot of times, I mean, I have experienced lots of family dynamics in every household that is heteronormative, you know, straight mom and dad. The father might think he's the disciplinarian, but the mother makes that house run. She makes the house run, and I guarantee you your kids are probably more afraid of her. (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is... How can straight men use the possibility model of a queer uncle to take on a little bit more of this work? A lot of times what happens is you end up with these tropes that just move the labor to somebody or something else. Like both of us lived through 15 years of movies with manic pixie dream girls and they seem really fun and cute on first glance but then you realize they're just tropes that exist for the men to have to do nothing and it's like 
I don't want the trope of the gay uncle to be another manifestation of the manic pixie dream girl. All of this is calling men, straight men, dads, middle-aged men. It's calling them in to more action, you know, more enlightenment, more service, et cetera. Yeah. Like, I've been thinking about this a lot, to your point, that that's putting an additional burden. Instead of just saying what you need yep. and say, or, or saying, being willing to say, no, I can't do this, or I don't want to do this, or I'm not feeling up to this, by trying to, like, push through and fight through it all, like, that makes it worse, Right. Mm -hmm. You're making it worse for everybody else in the long run. So straight men, talk about your feelings. Go to therapy. Yes. It's good for you. Yes. Like you should like like get an emotional toolbox. At some point, no matter how good you are at bottling things up or coping, and mm -hmm. the straight men I think are the kings of bottling things up and finding coping mechanisms. Like yeah. that's a cultural norm for straight guys. You're gonna have to deal with it at some point. Do you want to deal with it when you're 70 and you're having your first extreme health crisis of your life, or do mm -hmm. you want to deal with it when you're 35 and you've got kind of the emotional space to evaluate why it is you're doing the things that you're doing and why you feel the way that you do? Like that's yeah. Like, do it now. Like, don't, do it don't now. put it yeah. off. Like, put well, it, like, it's work. Yeah. Well, and understand that, like, something that, like, changed my world when someone first told me this a few years ago and that I've now heard several times since. Um, men, cisgendered men, even cisgendered gay men like myself, we are given a script of, like, how many feelings we get to feel. Men are told very on by the culture you can be angry or you can be horny. It'd be great if you were both at the same time, but that's kind of about it. Mm -hmm. And then we allow women to experience more emotions, but they're never actually allowed to be angry. But with men, we're usually only told the accessible emotions that we can express are anger and arousal. But the thing about anger is that anger is always covering up something else. Anger is a blanket emotion. I'm not the first person to say this, but anger is an emotion that's protecting some other emotions. And I think a lot of men have just convinced themselves that all they are is angry, but in actuality, they just haven't pulled back that anger to see what's beneath it. And it's like, that's the work. Sorry, we're, we're like moving into a different direction. No, but no, it's not, like, not at all. How can there be amongst dads or whoever a greater interrogation of emotions that seem as big as anger? What's under there? I, I think that's a really that's a really good and perceptive point. And to bring it back to pop culture, men of my particular age, of your particular age, especially straight guys, think about what your kind of models for masculinity were in the let's say the two thousands. Athletes right? and rock stars. Athletes, rock stars, and even in prestige TV, think about who the role models were. It, it, you've got uh, Tony Soprano, got, the Breaking yeah, Bad guy. Yeah, uh, the the main character from Deadwood, uh, Timothy Oliphant, and Justified. Right, like these yeah. are these are men who are by definition closed off, and they are by definition angry. And I can't remember who it was, the TV critic who wrote a book that was called like Angry Men, yeah. about that about that wave of protagonists, and they are all angry. But the figuring out why it wasn't just it wasn't enough to be like, oh yeah, these are angry men it's like what is their anger doing what is it exactly. what is it doing for them why are they going to anger is their core thing that's yeah. what made them interesting characters exactly yeah no it's so true and i think that the best fix for anger is inquisitiveness mm -hmm. asking your anger what it's doing 
seeing what it tells you. And honestly, make it full circle. Same thing with this pop culture shit. These dads <laughs> getting angry about how you know music videos and TV have, has left them behind. How can you turn your anger into interrogation? How can you make it a question? How can you see where that leads? It will help. Yeah, there's something really interesting that happens when you get angry and you take a step back from your. I like I say that I grew up as a very angry as a very angry man. It took me all of my 20s and doing a lot of combat sports and and smoking a lot of reefer. Like the combination <laughs> of those things like made me a, a much calmer and less angry person. That you call it reefer and, means that you are truly a dad. Truly, truly a dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a this. See, that's that's how we know. Um, uh-huh. But like. Something really happens when you don't just like sink into the anger into anger as your first reaction. If you feel it and then you take a step back and you start to ask, okay, well, like, what is it that's making me feel that way in this particular situation? Like, why am I going to this well? Mm-hmm. Like, re- you, you start to understand some really interesting things about yourself. And if you're willing to get past that momentary discomfort, then you can get yourself to an interesting place. You can understand yourself a lot yeah. better. And then maybe the next time, especially if you have a temper, which... A lot of dudes do. You can control that response and take it someplace more productive. Yeah. And what will help in this entire process is the Lorem playlist on Spotify. Nice, <laughs> chill wave bedroom pop. Absolutely. So so what nah. we're really saying here is you should be subscribed to Spotify if you're not already, because the playlist are, the play is pretty dang good. Uh, the play, it is a nice way to keep your finger on the pulse. And I will say... It's so interesting to be 39 and fully invested in a Spotify playlist called Lorem, which is the name (laughs) of a font, L-O-R-E-M. Another music podcaster friend of mine talked about how much he loves it. He used to be a songwriter. Now he has a music podcast. And he's like, oh, this is the way. This is the way. (laughs) So I know I've said it now like four or five times. Spotify is not paying me. uh, But the Lorem playlist... It works. See, Spotify should be paying you, though. That's the thing. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd take it. Come find me, Spotify. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think that's a pretty good place for us to wind down. Where can the people find you? Do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, I will plug it all. I have a culture podcast called Into It. It's Vulture's flagship podcast. As you know, Vulture is the pop culture vertical of New York Magazine. We publish two episodes of Intuit a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. We talk about big pop culture news. We talk about TV and movies you should watch. Just last week, I got to interview Chance the Rapper uh, on the 10th anniversary of his classic mixtape, Acid Rap. So that's Intuit. Go check it out twice a week. Then my other show is called Vibe Check, and it's basically a fun group chat come to life. I host it with two of my favorite people in the world, Zach Stafford and Saeed Jones, poet and writer. And that one is just uh, very black, very queer, kiki about all the things once a week on Wednesdays. Uh, Besides that, I'm on all social platforms at Sam Sanders. Sam, this has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you about any and all of these topics. I can't thank you enough for your time and I hope we get to do it again. Oh my God. Call me back anytime. I'm so excited to talk more about this. Uh, This was just delightful. Thank you. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you can, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It's really helpful. You can find me on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick and on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. The producers of The Pursuit of Dadliness are Morgan Jaffe and Leah Sutherland. Until next time, this has been The Pursuit of Dadliness. Take care of yourselves, friends. 